Last time I was here with you, I was in, um, I think I was on round four of six chemo treatments, um, and then followed that up with a surgery, and um, I guess it's not really fair to say that I'm in remission. Danny asked me if he could say that. I said, well, it's not really remission because it's a terminal diagnosis. But the good news is that I'm not in treatment right now, and I had a clean CAT scan last fall, so I'm real thankful for that. Um, and I'm able to do this in the meantime. So good to be with you here today. <clears throat> you know, it seems that everybody is an expert in something, music, academics, athletics, and my expertise is not one that you would want to have. By God's sovereign design, I am an expert of sorts in losing loved ones to suicide. Five times now, I've received the dreadful news that one of my family members has taken their own lives. Um, and there's no heartache equal to losing a loved one to suicide. Wading through the wreckage and the debris is confusing and it is agonizing. And shortly after the death of one of my loved ones, I wrote out a formula, if you will, for understanding what it's like to lose a loved one to suicide. So here's that formula. <clears throat> Does it look confusing? It should look confusing. Let me explain it. DP, there at the beginning, stands for deepest pain. So just imagine your deepest pain or loss. Try to remember a time where you were devastated or disappointed or despairing. Recall the thoughts and the emotions of that experience and then multiply this experience by an exponent, three or more. Then you'll multiply that by everything else in the next set. So STW stands for sinful thoughts, words, and deeds. You remember all your sinful thoughts, words, and deeds that you committed against your loved one from the time you first knew them until the time that they died. And you replay these events over and over, especially those ones that you think committed, or excuse me, contributed to the death of your loved one. Then you multiply that by SFM, your shortcomings, failures, and mistakes. So you think through all your shortcomings, you should have been more thoughtful, more attentive, less busy. Then there are your failures, the ways that you could have served your loved one better, making life's hardships more bearable, and your mistakes, the wrong decisions, and such that you think contributed to your loved one's death. Multiply that by GS, guilt and shame. Take all the guilt upon yourself for your loved one's death. Blame yourself. After all, you should have. Should have made that phone call. Should have prayed more. Should have written that note. Should have given more hugs. Should have been more friendly. If only you would have done something differently, this would not have happened. Your guilty thoughts always begin with, what if, if only, and I should have. Then there's the shame. You're ashamed and embarrassed that it was your loved one who died by suicide. What will people think? Am I marked for life? Will they think I'm a bad person because this happened? I just can't face anyone. Multiply that by C-U-Q confusion and unanswered questions. 
You replay the event of the suicide and the events leading up to the suicide. You're confused by why they did it. You wonder what they were thinking. The details, the police reports, the autopsy reports, notes left behind, they don't make sense. Then you ask questions that you will never have answers for. What were they thinking in those last moments before dying? What triggered this? What was the final straw? Did they have pain when they died? Perhaps they regretted it at the last moment and tried to undo the attempt. Did they not love me enough to want to live? And why did God let this happen? When all those are multiplied together, then you can subtract, just take away, H-D-D-F, your hopes, dreams, and desires for the future, all of them. These will never be fulfilled. Your loved one will never have another Christmas, another birthday, another anniversary. There will be no more children, no more weddings, no more graduations, no more family reunions. You won't hear their voice again. They will never walk through your front door again, wear that shirt again or sit in that chair again. You imagine what the future would be like if your loved one had chosen to live. You tell yourself that they died before they were supposed to, and so they're missing a future that was laid out before them. And if your loved one was unsaved, there will never be an opportunity for salvation. Their eternal destiny is sealed. How could God cut short the opportunity? Once you've subtracted these, then you can add DPL, the daily pressures of life, schedule, commitments, school, job stress, finances, and more. So this formula is a way for you to understand what it's like, just giving a glimpse, really, into the sorrow. And some of you know this sorrow, you've experienced it, and you know exactly what I'm talking about, and this formula makes sense to you. I hope also that you have known the comfort and the hope that the Lord gives in experiencing this kind of loss. I think of 2 Corinthians um, 1, 3 through 5. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our tribulation, that we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble with the comfort with, with which we ourselves have been comforted by God. For as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, so our consolation also abounds through Christ. I want to tell you just briefly some of my story. I won't share all the details. But you can find out more from a little booklet I wrote um, called Hope Beyond Despair, Finding Truth After the Suicide of a, uh, after a Loved One's Suicide. <laughs> there we go. Um, and you can find it in the resource downstairs. It's just a small booklet, and um, it's only a few dollars is what it looks like here. Hope Beyond Despair. I was only 13 years old when my father broke the news to me that my mother had asphyxiated herself in her garage. My parents were divorced, and my mom lived in another town and had remarried, and I hadn't seen her for a couple months. 
Sadly, our last conversation was about six weeks previous when she called to tell me that her husband had shot and killed himself. Her words accused me for his death because I had previously spoken against him for threatening to kill my father. And the next thing I knew, my mother was dead by her own hands. She was only 34 years old. My stepdads and my mother's suicides were just the beginning. Um, when I was in my early 20s, my stepbrother took his life through asphyxiation. And then in 2002, my brother Tony took his life through drug overdose. Tony was my only biological brother. Um, he was six years younger than me, and we looked a lot alike. And as an older sister, I had a motherly sense of protection for him. Very sadly, Tony and his wife lost an infant son to a, a fatal syndrome called hydrops, and their loss was devastating, and Tony turned to cocaine to comfort his aching soul. And within half a year, their marriage was on the verge of collapse. Um, then came the dreaded one-year anniversary of the baby's death, and six days later, uh, my brother was high on cocaine, and he took enough prescription medications to lose consciousness and then aspirate his vomit. Um, lack of oxygen caused his brain to swell, and then a massive cerebral hemorrhage, and he died the next day. Um, he was only 27, and he left behind a wife and a four-year-old son. Just seven months after Tony's death, my 14-year-old cousin hung herself from a belt in her closet, and her little sister found her. My reaction to each of these suicides was different. Um, the variations depended upon my age, my relationship with, and my relationship to that person, and then, of course, my own walk with Christ. But by far, the most difficult deaths were my mom's and my brother's. I didn't know the saving grace of Christ at the time that my mother died. I didn't know the healing power of his word. I struggled with intense anger and guilt and shame. I was livid at what she had done. But then I felt guilty for being mad. I was defensive when others mentioned her death. And I was angry when people said nothing. I felt guilty for my past wrongs, and I blamed myself for her death. I was ashamed, and I feared what other people would think of me. I felt like I wore a sign that broadcast to the world, my mother committed suicide. In addition to the anger, guilt, and shame, my mind was plagued with confusion, unanswered questions, and overwhelming grief, and sorrow, and pain. The nightmare grew darker through my own rebellious choices. I started getting drunk with my older sisters and their friends. I cut classes, I blew off my schoolwork, my grades plummeted. I was defiant and disrespectful to those in authority. And so at the young age of 13, I was on the fast track to ruining my life. But things began to change when I was 15 and I was invited to go to Bible camp um, up at CBARN, MWSB. Some of you have gone to school up there. By God's great grace, he allowed me to hear the gospel, that I could be forgiven of my sin through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
I was so relieved to hear this good news. And so I confessed my sin to him that day, asking forgiveness through his shed blood. Accepting Christ's forgiveness of my sin didn't change the events from my life, but it did change my perspective on my circumstances. So with a new and redeemed heart and dwelt by the Holy Spirit, I could begin to move forward. I started sorting through my anger and guilt and shame and the questions and the confusion surrounding my mother's death. And it was a process that would last many years as I learned more about God from the Bible. I first began to work through my sinful anger and bitterness toward my mother. What she had done was wrong, and I needed to forgive her, as Colossians 3.13 says, forgiving one another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. And I know forgiving someone who's dead sounds really strange um, and impossible, but it isn't. Forgiveness is a deliberate choice that changes your own heart, even if sometimes it can't be transacted to others. And so in obedience to God, I remember verbally expressing to my mother that I had forgiven her for the pain she had caused. I deliberately put off my sinful response toward her, and although I knew she couldn't hear me, it didn't matter. I was finally free from the intense anger and bitterness that I was harboring toward her. Another response I needed to work through was guilt, thinking that I had caused my mother's death. The blaming thoughts incessantly plagued me. If I had been a more obedient little girl, she wouldn't have killed herself. If I would have put my clean clothes away or turned my socks right side out, if only I would have said, or if only I wouldn't have said, the accusatory judgments waged on. It was easy, easy to blame myself for her death. But thankfully, I realized my perspective was incorrect. I did not cause my mother's death. Romans 14:12 says, every person must give account of himself to God. Our choices belong to ourselves. My mother made her own decision. It didn't belong to me. And certainly, I should confess any disobedience on my part, but the blame for her death was not mine. Shame was another hard attitude I needed to sort through. I was overcome by the fear of man, in which I was overly concerned with what others thought of me. Fear of man is the anxiety of being rejected. It is a self-centered pride that robs the glory that is God's alone. And this fear began to dissipate when I was in my mid-20s and I became a speaker for a national organization. And as I shared my story, I realized people didn't condemn me for my mom's choice. Instead, they, people expressed their love and their care because of the hurt I had been through. And this encouraged me to put off my shameful fear of man. The battle to work through my mom's death was long and hard. It came in waves and the healing was slow. Working through my brother's death was surprisingly brief, but it was incredibly intense. Um, it was definitely the most intense spiritual battle that I had faced to that point. When I first heard about Tony's overdose, I immediately exhorted myself to humbly accept God's sovereign dealings as good. But my very next thought was, this isn't fair. 
and the battle ensued. <laughs> My wrestlings over the next months were intense. I knew that I must bring the darkness of Tony's death into the light of God's word and to see it from his perspective because anything less than God's perspective on this situation would be like a Band-Aid on an amputated limb. I already knew from experience the smorgasbord of lies that Satan serves up when someone commits suicide. He lies about the character and the person of God. He lies about the word of God. He lies about your hope and your future. He lies about your responsibility in the situation. He lies about where to go for help and what you really need. Because the deceiver delights in more destruction in the midst of destruction, I knew I must be ready to fight his lies with the truth of God's word. The aftermath of suicide is a battle that must be fought with God's sword of the spirit if you're to stand against the schemes of the devil. I want to mention eight lies that one may be tempted to believe in a suicide situation. Um, some of these lies were ones I believed. Some, some were ones that, I, that were just mere passing thoughts. Some were ones that I struggled with for a long time. And some are just ones that I heard from others um, or read about in suicide situations. And I don't think I've listed all the lies that one is tempted to believe because it seems like, um, like Satan's smorgasbord comes in all flavors and varieties, each seasoned to our own situation. So I'm going to go through these lies rather quickly. I discuss them more in depth in the booklet, and if you get the booklet, you can um, understand them more, and then the, just the scriptural basis for these lies. So the first lie, my loved one's suicide is my fault. But the truth is that each person bears the responsibility for his or her own choices. Another lie, this is more pain than I can take. But the truth is that God comforts our pain and he does not push us beyond our ability to obey him. Another lie, the Bible doesn't address my situation, but the truth is that God's word gives sufficient counsel for any situation. It is a lie to believe that God didn't have anything to do with this awful situation. It is the truth that God is sovereign. His plans and his purposes are always accomplished. It is a lie to believe that suicide is a genetic trait or a family curse, so there's no hope for your family. The truth is that suicide is a sinful choice. It's a lie to believe that God was wrong to let your loved one die. The truth is that our God's supreme rule is always consistent with the beauty of his divine character. It is a lie to believe that people who commit suicide go to hell. The truth is that people who have received Jesus' forgiveness of sin go to be with him, and those who haven't go to hell. And it is a lie to believe that your loved one's suicide has ruined your life. 
The truth is that God doesn't waste a hurt. He uses suffering for our good. It's easy to listen to the smorgasbord of the deceiver's lies when you're physically and emotionally exhausted from the shock and grief of a loved one's suicide. Despite this, you can still take up the weapon and fight lies with God's truth. The grief is painful and it takes time to heal, but as we replace lies with the truth, we'll find comfort and hope in the living God, a hope that is beyond despair. Thank you. Okay, we're going to transition now um, to equipping you guys. Um, there are going to be, I would trust the Lord to bring opportunities for you to be able to help somebody who is struggling and hopefully save a life and prevent a suicide. So we're going to start by looking at, or we're going we're to finish here by looking at what you guys can do to be equipped to help those that you might run into um, in your life. So let's get set up here. Okay, there's a, a lot of good resources out there. Uh, I've taken some of my material from the class that Danny and I have done. We've done a class and, and some training. There's a couple of booklets uh, in the Resource Center. Some of you guys may have already done or may be doing some suicide, uh, having that as a topic for some of your counseling projects. So there's a lot of good resources out there. But we're going to talk about just kind of some of the some of the basics, the CPR of suicide prevention, if you will. So we're going to use an acronym, SAVE to kind of hopefully make things somewhat memorable for you guys. So um, just to start out, we're going to talk about some general thoughts and some, some general tips. Not every circumstance leading up to suicide is going to be the same. So these will be, we'll talk about um, with the S, some signs that you guys can watch for, although they're not all the same. We're going to give you some things to look for. Um, but sometimes there aren't signs and signals before somebody decides to take their life. We're going to talk about how do you ask. Danny mentioned asking somebody, talking about it. Julie talked about a view and perspective. We're going to look at how do we start changing somebody's view and perspective to, to what they're, all they can see in front of them to looking at what God might have for them in the future. And then finally, how to enlist help. So for signs, we're going to start with looking at behavioral clues, right? There's going to be oftentimes some indication that something's not right. So it could be something like a drop in hygiene. They're not taking care of themselves. They've kind of lost some of that uh, just kind of natural uh, choices of, of what they wear and, and that sort of thing. There could be missing commitments, missing classes, missing work, missing significant uh, outings with you or activities. There could be giving away valuables. You'll see that sometimes with pets or with things that are valuable to them, you know, a, a favorite item that they own. You can see it with a sudden purchase of weapons or an infatuation with weapons. Again, with Montana, there are, um, it, it's not hard to get a hold of firearms in this state. It's, it's, there are just a lot of hunting and that sort of thing, and that can be a, a sign. Drug and alcohol use 
And it doesn't have to get to the a level of, of constant abuse or, or that type of thing. Any type of chemical that's going to impair your judgment could, could indicate um, a, an increased danger. So those are behavioral clues. We're going to look at situational clues now, what to look out for. There could be some upsets like a job loss, a broken relationship, whether it be dating or marriage. Could be a death of a loved one, as Julie mentioned, if, there's been, if you know of suicide in someone's family that can uh, be something to be watching out for. Expulsion or the threat of expulsion from, from school. Previous suicidal thoughts or, or attempts. If somebody's walked down that path so far already, it's a lot easier for them to, to head down that road again. Some of the, the, the apprehension may be gone from that. And then a change in medications. If you know somebody's been going through a hard time or they've had change in medications, some some prescription medications actually have a side effect that would increase suicidal thoughts or severe depression, which sounds kind of counterintuitive, but something to know if, if you're close enough to somebody to know those things. And then you want to listen for verbal clues, right? What are they, what are they talking about? What is some of their speech? Are there fatalistic com um, comments, hopelessness just in general and how they're talking about things? Is there more discussion of mortality and death? Are they actually using the word suicide? asking questions about your opinion about suicide, those types of things. Um, all things to look for. And again, when it comes to signs, um, you want to be kind of observing and listening. And we're going to, one caution I want to, to bring though, if somebody, if, if depression isn't necessarily the only thing leading up to a suicide, but if that is, is the case and somebody's been really depressed, you've been seeing some of those signs, if you all of a sudden see an upturn in their attitude or their perspective, sometimes that isn't always indicating a good progression. They can may have made the decision potentially, yes, I've been weighing on this decision, I do, I've decided I'm going to take my life, I've got a plan. There can be a release of a burden at that point where they're feeling like, yes, I have a plan, the end to my pain is going to be coming up as they see it, the escape. So if you see, if you haven't talked to somebody already and you see kind of an upturn, and it's, or if you have and you know there's been some suicidal thoughts, that's something to clue in. It's not always a sign that everything is getting better. Okay, so we're going to talk about how do we go about asking that question. Um, so we're going we're gonna to talk about things to avoid and then ways that you could ask the question. So if I came up to somebody and I said, hey, um, uh, you're, not, you're not thinking about suicide, right? Um, how do you think they're going to probably want to respond to that? Uh, no, 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 we're, no, we're, I'm good. It's, no, it's fine. Everything's fine. Another way you might be tempted, you know, I know like if, if you were really hurting and were thinking about taking your life, you'd say something to me, wouldn't you? So here, we're not even asking, are we? We're, we're kind of, we're tiptoeing around the subject. I've got a, kind of a third example. You know, hey, things are, are bad, but like it's not so bad that you'd want to take your life, is it? Again, we're assuming the negative. Those are very closed statements. It's almost like, okay, I feel like I should say something. I'm a friend of yours, but like, please don't say yes, because I have no idea what to do next. That's kind of what you're communicating here. So what we want to do is we want to find ways to ask the question and bring that up in a way that's very open, that's, that's inviting. There's two ways to do it. You can do a direct approach or an indirect approach. Uh, I've, a lot of what, uh, what I've heard in, is 
do the direct approach if you can. Just just go there. Um, so here's in contrast to those first examples. What if I came up to somebody and I was like, I can see that you've been having a really hard time lately. And um, man, I just want to know, can I ask you a personal question? Um, have you ever thought about suicide? Has that been something that's ever come across your mind? So what's different about this approach? First of all, I have um, acknowledged that they're having a hard time. I've made some observations in their life, right? Hey, there's, there's some things going on. I care about you. I see it. I'm, I'm asking you a question. Now, here, you're, in, you're asking to go personal. You're caring enough to go deep. You're re recognizing, you know, this is an easy topic, um, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go in there. I'm going to invest. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to go into your, lean into your situation and your, your problem, and then I'm, I'm whoops. Sorry. Um, okay. Um, then I'm actually I'm bringing that up. I'm I'm acknowledging that difficulty. I'm mentioning the name that the word that you know is kind of that taboo word. I'm bringing I'm the one bringing it up. So now when they bring it up, it's not like a new thing. There's there's been some communication that this is a safe place. I'm a safe person to talk to. So the indirect approach is going to be similar, but maybe you want to go at it from, and, and sometimes this can be somebody maybe you don't know as well, or maybe it is somebody you know, um, but another way, hey, I can see you've been going through a really hard time lately. Um, I know, I, I can see it's been taking its toll on you. You know, a lot of people in your situation, you know, if things are that bad, they might be thinking about, you know, I just, I'd rather just not even wake up anymore. You know, have you ever had those kind of thoughts? So what am I doing here? Again, you're making some really good observations. Things are hard. I'm seeing it's taking its toll on you. Now you're going to bring in an element of, hey, you're not alone. Other people have been where you're at, and it's OK to admit other people have had really despairing thoughts. And again, um, have you ever felt that way? A real easy, easy way to kind of transition indirectly into that question. So at this point, you want to give some time, right? You're just asking a, a pretty, pretty intense. When you get to the point of asking this, you want to make sure you've got a little bit of time. Don't do it on a five-minute work break, but maybe like, hey, can I chat with you after work? Or, hey, can we go for a walk after classes today? Something like that. And give time if, if they are indicating that they are struggling or if there's any hesitancy in them answering that question, then ask a lot of open-ended questions. What's been going on lately? Tell me about it. Like, I really want to be here for you. I want to listen. I want to hear what's going on. Um, when somebody gets to that point, what, what's going on in them, they see that their portion is just this black, charred mess. That's all they can see is all they, their, their vision and their view is, is, is restricted to what they see in front of them and what's immediately around them. All they see is black, right? So now, if that's where they're at, and we've asked some good questions, and we've uncovered that they're willing to talk a little bit, now we're going to enter into the next phase of changing their view and perspective, right? We need to get them to, from going from here to look up and to see, wow, there's something out there. There's, there's hope. Yeah, you know what? There's a lot of black right in front of me, but this person is trying to tell me that there's something else out there. So that's what we want to move somebody towards, right? Suicide is said to be a permanent solution to a temporary problem. And so you have, may have an opportunity to help somebody see 
that the problem isn't permanent, the problem is temporary, and that there's, there's some hope for change. What they need, number one, is hope. So let's look at how we can give some hope. So I'm gonna break the hope in changing view and perspective into, into three different areas. Something that would be helpful for anyone, whether you know where they're at spiritually, something that would be helpful for believers, some true promises from God's word, and then for unbelievers, what could be helpful for somebody if they don't know the Lord, we'd, the hope is different, right? So for anyone, <clears throat> the fact that they're willing to talk to you and admit to you what's going on and share with you what, how heavy their burden is, is an indication that they have hope. Somebody who is just resolute and set and is made up their mind is probably not gonna wanna talk to you. So the fact that they're even talking to you, you can reflect back on that and say, hey, the fact that you're talking to me shows that you've got hope. Express your care and desire for them to live. You care about them. Hey, they need to know that somebody's gonna notice if they're not there. And so you can do that by saying, I really care for you. I do care if you live. I do want you to live. And then finally, or not finally, but um, if they don't have hope, ask for them to rely on your hope. So I know you can't see out of this situation, but I'm gonna walk through this with you and rely on my hope for right now. And then finally, indicating that others have walked through this path with them or similar to what they're walking through and have made it out. They've made it beyond the darkness and they're able to see beyond that. Uh, we see that indication in Job 3. He, wanted, he despaired of the day he was even born. Um, but we see at the end of it, there was hope and he made it through that dark time. Okay, now for believers, um, the first thing I want to look at is the fact that God has not left them. Right? He still watches over them and he has authority over their life. Gracie? A believer may be feeling a lot of hurt from whatever is going on in their life. God has not left them and he still controls their life. Secondly, Jesus, all of us as believers, Jesus has bought us, right? He is our shepherd. He has promised to walk through even the darkest, deepest valleys with us. Jack? Not an unfamiliar passage by any means, but there is such hope in the familiar promises of God as we need them in our darkest times. God is faithful to offer another solution, right? This permanent solution that they're finding to be the solution is not the only way out. McKenna? So commit that one to memory. Let that one be able to just flow off your tongue very naturally. But God, God is going to make us the way of escape, but the escape is not escaping from the situation. The escape is the endurance that he will produce within us as he walks with us. Okay, now for an unbeliever. Uh, we don't have the same hope that we offer to an unbeliever as somebody who trusts in Christ. No one is ever beyond God's 
love and beyond God's reach. Psalm 139 talks about how he has knit us together in our mother's womb. He knows each of us intimately, and we cannot escape his presence. So they cannot, they are not with, with outside of the reach of God's love and forgiveness. God's love is seen in Jesus dying for us while we were yet sinners. Sometimes that guilt and shame of life and maybe some guilt of something that they have done um, or a life that they have lived is overwhelming, but that's the beauty of the gospel. Jesus has come while we were sinners, while we were in our most miserable state. That is when Jesus died for us. There's such hope in that for unbelievers. And then finally, God gives us hope through his word. Romans 15:4 talks about how all of the things that were written in the scriptures were written, were written for our comfort and hope. You don't have to have the answer to everything that somebody is struggling with, but you can point them to Christ who has the answers and to God's word who has, that has promises for the hope that we have to survive. So, view and perspective. Let's kind of review real quick. So signs, we want to look for behavioral signs, situational signs, verbal signs. We want to uh, learn how to ask, whether it be directly or indirectly. How do we ask that question? Um, and then we want to look for opportunities to change their view and perspective to give them hope. And finally, we want to enlist help, right? We don't expect you guys to walk through this with somebody solo. Take them seriously, first of all. We want to take all situations seriously. I had a roommate call me up once years ago saying she swallowed a bunch of pills and she wanted me to come home. She's like, don't call, the, don't call the hospital, don't call emergency. I was like, I can't do that, I've got to call. Um, her situation was, um, looking back now, I don't know if, if she was serious or not, but you can't mess around with that kind of stuff. Um, don't promise confidentiality beyond what would be helpful to them, right? If they say, you can't tell anyone, don't make that promise. What you need to do is you can say, I am not going to exploit this. I'm not going to go talk to everybody. But what I'm going to promise you is I'm going to find help with somebody who's mature and who's trustworthy, who can help. Don't take the full responsibility on yourself. Again, I'm giving you kind of some CPR that will help you to identify and to take somebody to get the help that they need. Um, and along those lines, if there's ever any immediate emergent danger, then don't hesitate to call 911. That is, that is definitely a resource um, for you students. Make use of the RAs. They can help you in those situations. Um, Danny or I are very much willing to help at any time that you need any of the staff. Reach out to disciplers, whoever is available and accessible for you. Don't leave a person alone if you know that they're struggling. Uh, stay with them. Say, I'm here for you. Get other people to stay if you do need to ex exit to like make a phone call or whatever. Have somebody else come and stay. Offer to go with them to get help. It can be intimidating if you say, yeah, you know, you really should go see Danny next week, next Monday. But say, hey, let's go together. I'll go with you. Um, I went in this with you together. We'll go. We'll talk to whoever we need to talk to and, and be there for them. Um, again, what we want to do is we want to get people to look beyond the black in front of them and to look out and see that there is hope, even if they can't see it right now. Um, and, of course, um, throughout this whole time, be in prayer. You know, even if it's those arrow prayers like we see in, you know, Nehemiah, you know, prayed to the Lord and said to the king, 
you know, use, rely on the Holy Spirit and, and God's help as well. Um, I'm going to pray. Uh, I've got a resource that we kind of um, handed out that's got some other helpful tips of different questions you can ask. And please don't hesitate to talk to Danny or I or anyone else. If, if either you're struggling with some of your thoughts, if you know of somebody, if you're just not sure, uh, this time of year is actually uh, really one of the most common times of year. Um, March and April are two of the heaviest months for suicide. just seems like after the long winter and different things. Um, so this, this is real right now. I actually had somebody in my office this week, uh, again, God's timing, who um, knew of two situations that they were directly speaking into, and they had gotten some uh, helps on the Internet, and so we kind of went over that and, and prayed together, and um, it's, it's all around you. And so hopefully this will help you to, to notice some things and to lean into those situations so that God might be able to use you to offer some hope. Um, I'm going to pray, and then you guys are dismissed. Heavenly Father, we, we come before you knowing that it is in you that we truly have hope. It is in Christ that we have life. And that there is hope beyond what we can see sometimes. And as we think about these different signs and suggestions and, and helpful hints on how to come alongside one another, would you give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and, and a heart to understand where people are at? Help us to be relying daily on your truth. Um, and reaching out when we need help, as well as being there for friends. We trust that it is, um, it is you that we have to hope in. That you um, anchor that hope in our soul. In Christ's name, amen.